Let's reopen our Bibles to John chapter 12. And the Lord has brought us now to a strong statement of our Lord Jesus Christ on what would be accomplished, some of the large events that would take place when he was glorified. I hope that I have made this middle section identifiable to you from verse 20 through verse 33. Jesus has said the hour had come that the Son of Man should be glorified in that 23rd verse. He has asked his Father to glorify his name through his coming death in verse 28. And the Father had responded from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And then Jesus explains that that voice that came from heaven was for their benefit, not for his. And then Jesus made these statements in verses 31 through 33. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. We want to look at the first part of the first verse of these three verses. And that is, now is the judgment of this world. I hope the context is settled in your minds. Because we interpret scripture by context. Because if you just look at the word judgment, you're going to think of the final judgment. If you look at the word now and you've already made that ruling in your mind about judgment, then you're a preterist. Because now it's time for the final judgment. Because you didn't take time to study the context and to rule out such a ridiculous idea. John chapter 12 and verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. The first word now is a timing word that helps narrow down the interpretation of these related verses. It's used twice here. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Jesus has introduced by several timing statements that an epoch or era is about to begin shortly hereafter. We are down to a few hours a couple of days maybe from his death. He has said in verse 23, the hour is come. Not the hour shall come, but the hour is come. Verse 27, Father, save me from this hour. And so there have been statements made of something that's imminent that is going to happen. The combination of now is twice in this verse. It's in chapter 13 and verse 31, which is just a day or so later. Therefore, when he was gone out, that's Judas Iscariot, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Remember when Jesus prayed, Father, glorify thy name, things that happened to Jesus Christ glorified Jesus and glorified God by glorifying Jesus Christ. But it was now. The combination of now is that's found here in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled? All these things are telling us that it's something very imminent that's about to happen. And the thing that we have at hand is now is the judgment of this world. Now does not have to be the present minute or the present hour, but rather a soon approaching time. And we can learn that from following the word through the Bible. It's got 1,321 uses in our Bibles. But if you look at them, you will find out that it's something very near to happen. And so it is in our language that it means that. It can mean at the present time, now, or the present moment. And it can mean in the time directly following on the present moment, like we have here. It must mean, by our context and the way it's used in the Bible, an event or era in context that is approaching, impending, and soon. Because he's not going to die that hour. Now is my soul troubled. His soul was troubled, but he wasn't going to die yet. He says that his glory was yet future in verse 23. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And we've got the use of the word hour 
that we already went over once that it doesn't have to mean a 60-minute period of time, but an event, an appointed time, the time, the hour. When we say the hour of one's death, and I used that illustration before, we don't mean the 60 minutes of his death, we mean the time that he actually died. And so we've got the context leading us, and now the words in this verse. And then verse 32 is still only going to be a day or two later, if I be lifted up from the earth, and that's his death on the cross. Verses 32 and 33 are simple. Jesus was not going to die at Jewish hands because they would have stoned him to death. They had tried in chapter 8. They had tried in chapter 10. But he was delivered from that at all times because he would die a Roman death, which would be crucifixion hanging on a cross because he was going to be on a tree. But it's an impending event because Jesus in verse 32 is talking about something because you know that one more easily. That happens only a couple of days from now. What is in verse 31, those two things we want to attach to his death by the context. And we should attach to his death. And we want to get exactly what the Lord wants us to see in this verse 31 of his accomplishments on the cross of Calvary. What did Jesus accomplish and what was the glory that followed after his death on the cross? Because that's what he has been building the case for from verse 23 all the way to this point. He's been talking about death and I've mentioned it several times in every verse there is an allusion to his death, at least an allusion, is the judgment of this world. Now the use of world, in this clause that we want, now is the judgment of this world. Now tells us it's very soon. World doesn't tell us very much at all, because world is used with such a wide latitude in the Bible. This word that many superficial heretics emphasize is limited by context wherever you find it. It cannot be proven that there's a single use of the word world in the Bible that ever means every single human person without exception. Just like the word all. I would like someone to find the word all that has no exceptions in the Bible. It's just the use of words, and we say it all the time. And yet we want to fault the Lord, or others want to build a doctrine on the word all. Or they want to build a doctrine in the word world. And they are on thin ice to try to use the word all or the word world to build a doctrine for it. In one verse that we've already covered in John chapter 3 and verse 17, it had the world in it three times for three different things. For God sent not his son into the world, that is the physical world of human existence, that he would condemn the world of unbelieving non-elect, but that he would save elect believers in one verse. Three uses of the word world. So we have the word world here, and it's not going to give us a whole lot of help until we find out what judgment is under consideration. Then we can know what world's under consideration. Because it's hard to back into it from the word world. We know that it's something tied to the death of Jesus Christ. I do not want that to slip from your minds, because that's been context, and it's going to be Jesus Christ in his glory. The sense... The sense of this clause has to be driven by the context, by the timing, and by the connected event. The connected event is the death of Jesus Christ. The timing is immediate. It's impending. It's right before him. He is troubled now in his soul because it's right there that he's going to lay down his life. The contextual event is the crucifixion and his burial his resurrection and ascension, and they're not treated separately in the Bible because they go together. If he died without a resurrection, his death didn't accomplish anything. If he died with a resurrection and didn't ascend into heaven, he's not our intercessor with a life to save us to the uttermost. If he died, was resurrected, ascended into heaven, and wasn't given the throne at the right hand of God, then he's not ruling the universe like the Bible says he is. We had read to you just moments ago, Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, that Jesus Christ is sitting on a throne and has a rod of iron in his hand to dash in nation pieces, which was a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, and that was written sometime between 70 and 90 A.D. approximately. 
by the Apostle John that Jesus had that rule. So he must die, he must rise, he must ascend, he must be crowned the Lord of all, and all things put under his feet, like we read in Ephesians chapter 1, which was written in the 50s A.D., that Jesus was already in that exalted position, far above all principalities and powers. So the sense has to be driven. Jesus is tying him being glorified by God to his death. And Jesus on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples said, is it not right that Jesus, this Messiah that you're telling me about, and he was that Messiah, is it not right that that Messiah should have suffered and entered into his glory? Isn't that what the scriptures teach? And yes, that's what the scriptures teach. The timing is the hour had come. The timing is the use of now. The timing is the present tense is. Now is the judgment of this world. It is impending and right before us. The end goal has been established as Jesus' death and the following glory. In verse 23, the glory that the Son of Man would be given. Verse 28, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. God is going to glorify his son further. And we want to see the splendor of our Savior. He came into this world and was born in the lowest parts of the earth, as the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, but he is now raised far above all parts of the universe, only God being accepted. All things are under his feet. He fulfills Psalm 8, as Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, which we will likely look at. The connected event that is in this verse is the casting out of the devil. And we're going to get to that next Sunday because there's no way that we can cover both of these points in the depth and detail that they deserve. But that's attacked. There's three events, and we want to see all three of them happening together based on one event, and that's his death. His death brought about changes, and by his death I include... Let me say it again, resurrection, ascension, and coronation in heaven, meaning glorified, taking the book of the everlasting covenant out of the hands of God sitting on the throne and beginning to tear off the seals of judgment on the earth. But we want to keep those things attached together because they don't happen individually without the other or they are of no value as the Bible teaches us. The sense of now is the judgment of this world. The world is about to be judged. I am about to strike the world a smashing blow. My Father is going to glorify me to greatly alter this world. I am going to dash its nations in pieces. I am going to take the throne that has been stolen by another being for the last 4,000 years. Jesus is saying that and much more in now is the judgment of this world. Therefore, we conclude that only events resulting from and in close timing to his death can be considered here. Jesus ascended into heaven and was glorified and gave gifts to men to alter the world. Let's Think about some of these things. This is not yet to the point of what is the judgment, but let's think about a little timeline that we all have in our minds of what happened after the crucifixion. He was in the ground three days and three nights. For 40 days, he appeared alive to his apostles and by many infallible proofs proved that he had been resurrected from the dead. Then there was a, he ascended into heaven. We can see him ascending from earth's viewpoint in Acts 1. We see him arriving in heaven in Revelation 5. There's then a week, then the day of Pentecost, and he has poured out, sitting on his throne, with the earth his footstool, he's poured out the Holy Spirit on his apostles, which drastically changes them on the day of Pentecost, and they preach like never before, and men are being converted from the first day by the thousands. We know these things because we know the New Testament. Jesus ascended into heaven and was glorified and gave gifts to men to alter the world. And the first gift was apostle. 
then prophet, then evangelist, and pastor and teacher and so forth as the word of God lists them. Both God and Jesus right here in this context declared the great glory that was coming to the Lord Jesus Christ for laying down his life. Look at Hebrews 2 with me. I mentioned it just a moment ago. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2. Our Jesus is not hanging on a crucifix. Our Jesus is not in a manger. Our Jesus is not a long-haired beggar at a door trying to get in. He opens, the Bible says he opens and no man shuts. He shuts and no man opens. That's what the Bible says about him. That's what the Bible says about him in the book where they go to find him knocking at a door. He is knocking at our church's door, asking us to invite him in and allow him to come in for personal fellowship with us individually and as a church. Hebrews chapter 2 the Apostle Paul, and we have been here recently, but Hebrews is the, for the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And if you want to see Jesus Christ lifted up, Hebrews is one of the chief places to go. This is a quotation from Psalm 8, that all things are put under the feet of man. What is man? That thou art mindful of him. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and put all things under his feet. When you go read Psalm 8, you would think that it's a zookeeper. You've given man intellectual ability to train animals, cage animals, you know, to get a seal to stand on a ball, to get an elephant to stand in its trunk or whatever they do. And so you read Psalm 8, and without the New Testament, we would be kind of lost with Psalm 8. Or without the Holy Spirit burning in our hearts as the Lord did with those two on the road to Emmaus. But we have Hebrews 2. And so here's what it tells us. Verse 6. One in a certain place. That is David in Psalm 8. One is David. Certain place is Psalm 8. But one in a certain place testified saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and didst set him over the works of thy hands. And see, we can see ourselves fulfilling that so far to a degree. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Now there is where all means all. But not all. Because God is accepted. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Do you understand those three verses that I just read? That is Paul saying, you know what Psalm 8 says about man being crowned with glory and honor and all things being put under his feet. But we don't see everything put under his feet yet. So what did David mean in that certain place of Psalm 8? Well, here's Paul's inspired New Testament explanation. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Well, that gets us right into John chapter 12, for him to be planted in the ground. Crowned with glory and honor. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. Not man, not a zookeeper, not you, no matter what your accomplishments might be in this world. This is all things. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And so forth and so on. It became him to be given glory and honor, he was made a little lower than the angels to die, but now he's been promoted. And it says more than just all things are under his feet. It says it became him for whom are all things. That's even more than being under his feet. All things exist for the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And by whom are all things? All things exist by him upholding them by the word of his power. By him all things consist. And so it says more than them just being under his feet. They are under his feet to give him glory. And he 
ordained them all and uses them all and is the source of strength, power, and holding them together in use of them all. Right here in Hebrews 2. We want to get back now to John chapter 12. We're looking at the order of events. He sat down at God's right hand with enemies his footstool. That is what Peter preached in the day of Pentecost. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is the Lord, the kingship, fulfillment of Psalm 110 and verse 1. And he's the Messiah of God. He gave his apostles great Holy Ghost power. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. All of these events are tied together, and they were all purchased and initiated by his death on the cross of Calvary. When Jesus Christ died, it put events into play like a resurrection, like an ascension, like a coronation, like a day of Pentecost, like power, like a binding of the devil, like a casting out of the devil out of heaven, because heaven isn't big enough for both of them. Do you understand that? The Lord Jesus Christ went to heaven in Revelation chapter 12, and there wasn't room for both. And so there was a war, the likes of which World War I, II, or any other war, the Civil War, cannot compare to Michael and his angels fighting against the devil and his angels, and their place was found no more in heaven, but they were cast out. They had no further access into heaven. Our enemy cannot get there. The accuser of the brethren is cast down. But that's next Sunday. What is the judgment of the world? The Lord Jesus sent his apostles into all nations with his power and Satan bound to change the world. And they changed the world. I wish that you could grasp, and I could grasp with you, the fact that we are sitting here in the North, on the North American continent, the nations that we came from, because I don't know of anyone in here that came from Israel, the Gentile nations that we came from, worshiping the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. How extensive is his kingdom? Do you mean it reaches all the way to the Piedmont of the Carolinas? Yes, it does. And we are here in loyal subjection to him. If our government said, you either deny him or we will put you to death, what would we do? To make it easier for you to answer, what should we do? Death. Do you mean our loyalty is that great to an unseen king? Yes. Now look at the word judgment with me. Judgment can mean so many things in the Bible. So we've got to limit it by the rest of Scripture. Judgment usually means fair and equitable assessment or treatment of a situation. That's the judgment that the book of Proverbs teaches. That's judge righteous judgment. Judge not by appearance. So that's properly assessing a situation and coming up with the right solution for it. So when it says, now is the judgment of this world, is the world going to start acting equitably? No, I don't even know how to fit it in there. Is this the final judgment? No. When is the final judgment? Not at Christ's first coming, but at Christ's second coming. Which is going to be the end of the world. It's going to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. We went through that in 2 Peter chapter 3. There's countless scriptures. But the word judgment is often used in the Bible as the coming day of judgment. Because there is a day of judgment coming in the which all angels and men will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's at his second coming. The word judgment without the day of judgment attached to it is often used for that judgment. Judgment can be ruling against a party for their crimes. Issue a judgment against him. Like Acts 25 and verse 15 about the Apostle Paul. Judgment can be punishment of an enemy. And there is an enemy. And the world is the enemy of God. And when we are the friends of the enemy of God, we are his enemies. James 4, 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God because we're flirting with God's enemy. 
And so when we look at these judgments and we rule out the final judgment and we rule out fair and equitable assessment and we rule out just issuing a ruling and we rule out what judgment means in 1 Peter chapter 4 when judgment must begin at the house of God, what are we left with? That's what we've got to come to terms with. We first of all want to identify those events or eras that are not intended here. We've ruled out some uses of the word judgment. We've ruled out the word now, meaning this minute. Now we have to identify events that are not at hand here. It is not the final day of judgment. We've mentioned that. It is not condemnation of the wicked world. Jesus said in John 3, I am, John 3 and verse 17, For I am not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3.17 tells us that. And he's going to tell us that again at the end of this chapter. Look at it. 40, verse 47. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus' purpose in coming was redemption. But after he's glorified in heaven, he takes on a new position as the, a king, as we're about to see. It is not judging the world's sins in some redemptive way. It's not Jerusalem's destruction, for that was Jewish, and this is broader. We know this is broader because it starts out with Greeks wanting to see Jesus. It starts out with Jesus responding to that by saying, the hour has come when the Son of Man is going to be glorified. What does that have to do with the words, we would see Jesus, except they were spoken by Gentiles. And then we have the plant, the planting of a seed, bringing forth much fruit. So it's contextual evidence that just keeps coming forward. Jesus is going to be glorified. It's going to involve Gentiles. It's imminent. He's going to be crowned with glory and honor and be given a position above all principalities and powers. He's going to be given a rod of iron to dash a nation to pieces. Dash in pieces the nations. It's not the overthrow of Rome. Now is the judgment of this world. The world's too big for Jerusalem only. Rome wasn't judged on an impending basis immediately by Jesus Christ's death. It's not the judgment of the physical world. There's no flood here. There's no asteroid so it's not some physical judgment of the physical planet. It's not a world war, for his death did not bring such. And there have been many such wars. How would we pick one? So we rule out all those things that it cannot mean, which when we look at context, when we look at the timing, when we look at the rest of Scripture, what happened about the world with the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and coronation of Jesus? What happened? Was there a judgment made? Was there a change? Was there a blast against the world? Was a ruler taken off his throne? Was the, were the palace walls breached of the world's kingdom? The world's satanic kingdom, was it breached? Were there possessions taken out of that palace? Some of you know all these verses. Yes, yes, and yes. These things happened. Jesus smashed the world's united kingdoms under its great political and religious leader. And you cannot let the first half of verse 31 and the second half of 31 slip away and be two separate events. Just look at the verse, how they're tied together. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. The two go together. Look at if you just flip over four chapters to 1611, we're going to be there shortly. John chapter 16, three chapters about the gift of the Holy Spirit to the apostles in John chapters 14, 15, 16. 16 tells us that the Holy Spirit, verse 8, is going to reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now when it pulls up that word judgment, look at verse 11. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. And my point being, by turning you there now ahead of time, is just to show that the prince of this world and judgment go together. Just like they go together in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. 
There is going to be an attack on the authority of the world system by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's going to win. He's going to judge this world for its defiant attitude toward God for 4,000 years. And he's going to make some changes. Let's, look, let's think about some of those by some descriptive statements and by some passages of Scripture. We choose, of all our options for the word judgment, to mean the overthrow of an enemy, destruction or punishment meted out on a foe, as it is used in the Bible as one of its uses. Now is the judgment of this world. Jesus smashed the world's united kingdoms under its great political and religious leader, the devil. In effect, Jesus said, Now I shall strike this world with a smashing blow of authority. This wasn't the final judgment. This wasn't to condemn men to hell. This was to smash the authority structure of the world and prepare for the spreading of the gospel and binding of Satan for the apostles to go forth and make sure that you heard the gospel on the other side of the earth on another continent. And it worked. Of course it worked. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and the zeal of Almighty God, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, has guaranteed the government upon his shoulder, and he would be able to bear it and perform it. That's Isaiah 9 with verses 6 and 7. As children, we always memorize Isaiah 9, 6, but 7 is pretty good itself about how this is going to happen. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it because it's his son. And he's going to put his son on the holy hill of Zion and all the kings of the earth had better tremble. If he's angry but a little, they're in trouble. According to the prophecy. Look at Psalm 2, since I just made reference to it. Psalm 2. When we study the Bible by context, it means we have to look at all the angles so that we don't... How in the world are there preterists that can call themselves Christians? How can you be a preterist? Because you jump into that verse, I know what judgment means, and I know what now means. I'm all set. You know what they get out of 70 AD? The final judgment. It's already occurred. Aren't you, aren't you relieved? No, because you know it's not true, so it's no relief. Look at Psalm 2. There's so much that could be said. Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth, this is the world and its political system. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. This is, includes the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and their whole attitude toward the authority of God over them. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. He's talking about the Son of God being put in his throne. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. This includes the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. This is not his birth. This is not his eternal sonship. Eternal sonship is a heresy. This is not his birth. This is when he was put on his throne, which was at his ascension into heaven, which was based on his resurrection. They're so tied together. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Who owns it all right now? Now is the judgment of this world. Who owned it in John 12? Be very... Satan. Who owned it in Acts 2 or Acts 1? The Lord Jesus Christ did. We are talking about the man Christ Jesus. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Look at Luke 4. Some of you are wondering if I've gone loco. Luke 4. I told you to be careful in your answer. I know what you wanted to say. God owns everything. God's always owned. Of course he does. But who's the king on the throne that can dispense it and manipulate it and use it? It was the devil. Now it's the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, why does God even need Jesus Christ? Because God has chosen to operate that way, to display his perfections by his son, a man being on a throne over the universe. Our brother. We're joint heirs. 
Luke 4, this is what the devil said to Jesus. Verse 5, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Did the devil have power to do something like that? He did it. He showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Was he able to bring the Sabians, Sabians on Job's family? Chaldeans on Job's family? Hurricane or tornado on Job's family in Job 1? And the devil said unto him, verse 6, this is the devil speaking to Jesus, all this power will I give thee and the glory of them. For that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt serve me, worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, God owns everything. It has nothing to do with you. So what are you talking about? You misunderstand something about the ownership of this world. Jesus did not object at all to what Jesus what Satan said, Jesus simply said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. You are an imposter, and while you've had the throne for 4,000 years, I am not going to bow to you. I am not going to commit treason. I am not going to be a traitor. You are trying to get me to be a treacherous traitor like you were to God. And I won't do it. But notice what is said here. I have the power of it. Do you know what Jesus is going to say just a few days after John 12? Yeah. All power is given unto me yeah. in heaven and in earth. Amen. Go ye therefore and preach the gospel and baptize all the believers. In Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20. We choose to understand these words. Now is the judgment of this world. There was a transfer of power. There's a new sheriff in town, and don't be, I'm not being disrespectful. I want to communicate it to you in whatever words I can that Jesus now took the throne of the universe. He was crowned with glory and honor, and all things were put under his feet. He sat on the throne, he fulfilled Psalm 2, and he fulfilled this one, my brother Chris. Daniel chapter 2. Look at this one briefly with me. Do you remember that Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of a great image? And the image had gold, silver, brass, and iron and clay representing four world empires in succession. Babylon was the head of gold. Then we had the Persians of silver. Then we had the Greeks of brass and the Romans of iron and clay. But there's one more kingdom. It is a PowerPoint slide presentation on our website entitled The Five Kingdoms. What is kingdom number five? The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when would it appear? And what would it do? It would judge the world. How would it judge the world? It would smash the image of the world's successive empires into pieces. Right. Have you looked at a map recently? How much influence does Rome have? None. Yes. Yes. How, much how much influence does Athens have of Greece? Less. How about Babylon? It doesn't exist. It's mounds of dirt. Daniel chapter 2. You know how much time we could spend here. You know how much time you want and I want here, but we're not going to do that. Daniel 2.35. This is the vision. Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar, this is what you saw. Then was the iron... The clay, that's Rome. The brass, that's Greece. The silver, that's Persia. And the gold, that's Babylon, broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 34 is what we needed because before that, verse 31 to verse 33, the image is described Verse 34, thou sawest that image till that a stone was cut out without hands. It's a supernatural kingdom which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Something happened during the Roman Empire. And it was in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar that John the Baptist began preaching in Luke chapter 3. 
and this happened. Now is the judgment of this world. The world's going to be blasted by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be a transfer of power, and there's a new king over the universe. Not God being replaced. Jesus is under God. But God had given and allowed the devil to have this world and the kingdoms of this world for 4,000 years. He deceived our first parents into following him, and every man had followed him since, if it wasn't for the grace of God. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Our Jesus is so much more than that long-haired guy that's standing at that door. Don't you let that be your Jesus. Our Jesus is right here. And though his soul was troubled in verse 27, it only took him a few verses. And there's some intervening verses there of people wondering, was it thunder or was it an angel? It only took him a little bit of time to want to say what was going to happen when he died. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And those two go together. He was taken off his throne. He is still active, messing with your mind. And messing with doctrine coming out of pulpits. But he is not putting together world empires like he once did. He can no longer deceive all the nations like he once did. Until a short period of time before Jesus returns. Maybe. Maybe. Oh, Daniel. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Amen. And what kingdom was that? John the Baptist announced it. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. They go together. You believe the gospel to enter the gospel kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ by hearing about who he is and what he expects of us and you falling down before him and swearing allegiance to him but in the waters of baptism. It's glorious. There's a new king. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now is the judgment of this world. Look at Psalm... we got to go back to Psalm 2. I didn't read the whole thing to you. Psalm 2. we got to grab something out of that psalm so that we can go to Revelation and see it fulfilled. Ask of me in verse 8, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. Do you know what you are in this particular psalm? The heathen. Do you know who's inherited you? The Lord Jesus Christ has. And the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. He's the owner now. Thou shalt break them. This is future tense here in Psalms. It's future tense. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. This isn't just Herod. This is the kings of the earth. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling and kiss the Son. And that's what we're doing today. Not as they should kiss in fearful subjection and obedience, but we're kissing as his children, his brethren, wanting to honor and glorify our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, verses 9 and 10 tell us that thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Come over to Revelation chapter 2. Some of you read it last evening. Our brother just used it in his prayer moments ago. Revelation chapter 2. What a Savior we have. Oh, thank you, Lord, for showing me why I never loved the Armenian Jesus. There isn't anything to love about him. This Jesus, everything to love about him. Revelation chapter 2. And verse 25. But that which ye have already hold fast till I come. This is addressing the church at Thyatira. You can see that in verse 18. Verse 26. And he that overcometh for seven churches, there were promises and rewards for being overcomers. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he, So who has power? Who has the authority to give authority or power over the nations? Jesus now has it. Something's changed from Luke 4 to Revelation 2. I will give him power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers. Where is that from? Psalm 2. Even as I received of my father received as a past tense reception of that authority and power and that reign with a rod of iron over the nations of the earth. And we have seen it for the last 2,000 years 
empires can't get going. Listen, do you know that the Greeks were nothing but a bunch of goat herders and they took over the world? What gives a bunch of goat herders enough power to take over the world? There was Babylon, Bab mighty Babylon, then the Medes and the Persians. But the Greeks came all the way across from Europe into Asia and defeated the mighty Medo-Persians. They're goat herders, seriously outnumbered. Was there a spirit behind their empire? Oh, absolutely, yes, and the Bible tells us so. Why couldn't Adolf Hitler pull it off? Adolf Hitler and his German nation were not goat herders. Now, there were warriors in Greece, don't get me wrong, but they were small, seriously outnumbered. But what about Adolf Hitler? Wasn't he going to establish the Third Reich for a thousand years? What about Joseph Stalin? After he took care of Adolf Hitler, wasn't he going to establish the USSR? What about Mao Zedong? They all get dashed in pieces because there's a king on his throne. And he's using those nations of the earth to accomplish his own purposes and ends. And sometimes a king will say, I want a new translation of the Bible in English. And I want it to be the best ever. I want it to settle all this Bible discrepancy. And I want it to put bookstores out of business that are selling other versions. Because I only want one version in England of the Bible. I'm in such bad shape with how many things I want to say to you. Do you know how big the change was in this world? I should probably try to stick to these, but there's too many things to say. Did God promise that Abraham's seed would take the gates of his enemies? It's in Genesis 22:17. Did God promise through Jacob that Judah would always have his foot on the neck of his enemies? Who's Judah? That's the tribe of David. The tribe of David is also the tribe of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were these promises all the way along to Abraham, to Jacob, Psalm 2, Daniel 2, all pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ being put in charge of this world and casting the devil down from being able to deceive the nations and from being able to put the nations together into world empires. They were busted up. And his domain over those nations was limited so that the gospel could go into all those nations. And the gospel did go into all those nations. Jesus said, whom do men say that I the son of man am? The apostles answered with several options of that day. Jesus said, whom do ye say that I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is the gates of his enemies. Right. Jesus Christ went in to where his enemies had been and rescued us from the power of the devil and the power of all those nations and those empires that served the devil. There was no religion on planet earth except in the little tiny nation of Israel. The rest of the world was blind in darkness. You know, we might pick on the fact that the American Indians had never even thought of having a wheel because that was really blind because there were wheels in the earliest chapters of Genesis. But when it comes to religious things, we were no better than their great spirit. We weren't doing any better. At least they cut a big head off of a buffalo to look at from time to time while we're worshiping insects, dogs, cats, anything else that comes along or one that we can carve on a tree and call a totem pole. Or the way we can make out of stone. The world was in darkness under the control of the devil. And he had blinded the eyes of the nations so that the gospel could not go. But Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church based on this gospel. I am the Christ, the son of the living God. And that son is sitting on the throne of God right now. Did you hear those verses that I read to you this morning from Ephesians chapter 1? He raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, far above all. all. Far above all 
principalities, powers, thrones, might, dominion in this world, in the world to come. It doesn't matter where. It doesn't matter whether they're angelic or human. He's over them all. And for what purpose? To the church. Our brother is on the throne of the universe. He is our defender. You say, but there are martyrs that died. Why didn't he deliver them? Why would he steal from them the opportunity to give him the greatest honor ever? There is a reason for that. It wasn't because he didn't have the power. Why did he die? Because in God's order of things, he needed to die to pay for us. And some of them died to give... Did any of them... Stephen, you did that for a whole year. I'm trying to remember, of those that you read to us, how many were whining and complaining about the fact that he hadn't delivered them? Or were they praising him for the privilege of laying down their lives for him? Otherwise, you couldn't even keep John 12, verses 25 and 26. Because you've got to hate your own life. Because somebody will try to reason that Jesus Christ can't be in control if someone's dying for him. Why? Where did you get that idea? I see. You've been watching Joel Osteen on television. And you think that Jesus Christ just wants you to be thin, beautiful, rich, and so forth. But you're wrong. We through much tribulation shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, the Bible says, because that's what makes us better. How do we get to honor God? But by suffering for him. And if we suffer for him, the Bible says we shall be glorified with him. God had judged the world with a flood, drowning all, and had broken it linguistically at the Tower of Babel. But now it's the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne. The world had stood in defiance against God for 4,000 years, and Jesus blasted it. The world was judged by demoting and binding its ruler and demanding repentance out of the world. Do you know what the apostles brought into the city of Athens? The apostle Paul was left in the marketplace at Athens, and Paul could not stand around people discussing religion and philosophy without getting involved. He got involved. They took him to Mars Hill because they said, this is a new religion we haven't heard of before. And he preached to them that they were superstitious and had no idea of the real nature of deity because they thought he could be confined in one of their temples. But God, that created all of us, and it's made of one blood, all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth, has sent his son into this world and raised him from the dead because he is going to judge you by that son. And some got up out of that assembly and followed the apostle Paul out of that assembly. What a change took place in Athens with the gospel being preached in the center of pagan philosophy. What did Nero do to Christians, directly and indirectly? Killed them. Church tradition says that Nero killed Paul. Paul was in prison in Rome. Paul appeared before the lion twice, called him the lion. But the Lord Jesus Christ delivered him. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 22, Nero, this great hater of Christians, behind one of the great persecutions of Christians in the early centuries, Paul wrote and said, They of Caesar's household salute you. Men had been converted in Caesar's household. What did Constantine have to do? in 323 or 320 to preserve his empire, the Roman Empire. Have a great orgy for Bell or declare that he was now a Christian? Declare that he was now a Christian. Are you kidding me? What in the world has happened to the world that Constantine, a Roman emperor, would declare that he's a Christian? Not a true Christian, but it certainly took a lot of heat off those that were true Christians. Why? Because there's a new king, and he's breaking up the nations, and the gospel is going everywhere to find God's elect. The world was judged by breaching its walls and delivering captive slaves out of it. Look at Luke chapter 11. Remember the strong man and the stronger man? How the Bible describes that relationship and situation? There was a strong man. He had a palace. But the stronger man came along and raided his palace. When did that take place? Before Genesis 1? 
It's still in the future. You've been reading too much of Tim LaHaye. Or did it happen with Jesus Christ? It happened with Jesus Christ, and he said that it was already happening. Luke chapter 11, if I with, verse 20, If I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. If there has been such authority given to me that I can cast devils out of men because he's the ruling authority in this world, then the kingdom of God is on the scene. Verse 21, here's the explanation and, and, a, and uh, a metaphor for us to see it. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. Had the world been in peace for 4,000 years? They had been. Yes, they all got drowned once. Yes, they all spoke different languages because of the Tower of Babel. But had they continued on for 4,000 years in relative peace, worshiping pagan deities, polytheistic nonsense? When a strong man, armed, keepeth his palace, the strong man is the devil, is he armed? Yes, he is a mighty foe. Keeps his palace. What is his palace? His kingdom. His goods are his people. The nations and the peoples of the earth were his. God had one little nation. I chose you out of all nations, though you were the smallest of nations to be mine, was Israel. I hope you can understand verse 21. Verse 22. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ came upon the devil after defeating him at the cross and took away from him his spoils. He took us out of the palace of the strong man. There's been a change. See, you look at things that the news media wants you to look at and you don't realize why does the whole world keep, keep BCAD? Why does the whole world have a seven-day week? Why are there Christians in every nation of the earth? Why is our brother a few hours ago preaching to the aborigines in Southeast Asia? By Jesus Christ being on his throne. Look at Revelation 12. This will help tie the first half of verse 31 with the second half of verse 31. The first half is, now is the judgment of this world. The second half is, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. There's a woman in this passage, and the woman is a picture of the church. It's a picture of the Old Testament church turning into the New Testament church. The church is the bride of Christ. She brought forth in verse 5 a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Any guesses? From Psalm 2 or from Revelation chapter 2, she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Who sits on the throne of God? Do you need help with this? Some of Revelation is not difficult. And the woman, that is the church, fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. That's the twelve hundred and sixty years of the dark ages of Europe. And there was war in heaven. Michael and the angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. They lost. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. They had no place left in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Are those enough words for you to know who he's talking about? Which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now, oh, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. What gave the church its power? The death of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, what was the word of their testimony? The Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. The testimony of Peter. And they loved not their lives unto the death. They were willing to die for that Savior to obtain a better crown and a better resurrection. And the Bible tells us that's why they did it. 
Oh, it's so beautiful. What a Savior we have. The pictures of Jesus that are made. Who is behind that long-haired, effeminate man? That is not the Holy Spirit. That's not an apostolic drawing. That's not inspired. He's so different. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is my spirit troubled. But he saw the glory. Does the Bible tell us he saw the glory? Oh yes, I have set the Lord always before my face. Psalm 16. Hebrews 12. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, knowing what was coming, that he was going to be crowned with glory and honor. We'll get to more about the devil later. Let's, let me just, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Amen. Is that different? Is Matthew 4 different from Matthew 28? Matthew 28 is all power is given unto me. Matthew 4 is the devil saying all power is given to me. And Jesus not correcting him, just telling him he's not going to worship him because he's only going to worship God. 1 Timothy 3.16. I've tried to preach it very plainly to you. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, that's Jesus' incarnation, justified in the Spirit, backed up by the Spirit, by all His miracles and doctrine, seen of angels. What's next? Preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world. Those are stupendous events that are the judgment of this world. The devil was pulled off the throne of this world. His dominion over the nations blinding them all. The gospel had free course and was glorified in various places. The Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, Luke will describe it as, a door was opened to me. A door was opened. Who opened that door? The Lord Jesus Christ opened that door and Paul went through it. Paul would wait in a certain place and think that he was supposed to go west. And he would, no, north, no, south. Acts chapter 16 tells us that. The Lord leading the Apostle Paul and into the far corners of the earth, the gospel went. And here we are on the other side of the earth because the world was altered. Jesus is on his throne. Every time you worry about Washington, it shows you don't know Jesus. You have forgotten him. First, you're not going to change Washington. Washington's not going to change unless he wants it changed. We pray for it to change through him. But he reigns. He's got the rod of iron. He's king of kings and lord of lords. We shouldn't fear a thing. Paul stood there in Athens and told them, God has winked for 4,000 years at your idiotic idolatry, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. That is a judgment on this planet. That gospel went out and told every man. Do you know who he was telling to repent? the most intellectual, educated, pompous men on the planet, the Greeks. The Greeks seek after wisdom. The Jews want a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Look at Romans 16. I've got to bring this thing to a close. There's so many verses to look at and to think about and to glory in with the accomplishments of our Lord Jesus Christ. When, when that stone struck the image in the feet in Daniel 2 it says it had to grow it says it broke that image in pieces and then it grew and filled the whole earth now what did Jesus say about that what are these mustard seeds did Jesus say something about his kingdom that right now, apostles, as you look at it, it's very small. I want you to appreciate John 12. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. This little kingdom right now is not what I'm going to rule over. It's a mustard seed. But a mustard seed, when planted, is a huge bush tree, 30 wide, 30 tall, that all the heirs of the, all the, heirs of the, the, the fowls of the air can come and nest in its branches. And guess what we are? Has it grown? Is it bigger than what it was in little Judea? It's huge. And we get, to, we get to send the message of that king to 230 nations a month. 
by the witty inventions that king has allowed us to have and the Bible that that king ordered through the hands of another king for us to have and preserved him the night before he was to be and his family blown up. Romans 16. I'm going to close with this. It's time to close. How does Paul always end an epistle? He tells us, I have a salutation that is true in all of my epistles, and it's in verse 24. So that's the end of Romans. Wrong. But let's read it anyway. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That's how Paul always ended his epistles. He tells us that. That's his sign-off. But look what he tacks on. Now, now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Amen. We are the fulfillment of that verse. Paul was seeing the fulfillment then, and this epistle was addressed to a church where? In the capital of the Roman Empire. Look at the commandment of the everlasting God. The world was changed 2,000 years ago when Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. And that's why we have heard the gospel and heard the joyful sound and believed it. And may we go out of here today remembering that in verses 25 and 26, we were told that if we try to save our lives or we love our lives, we'll lose them. But if we'll hate our lives... We will gain them, and if we serve Christ by following him the way he lived and followed God, then we shall be with him for eternity, and the Father will honor us. John 12 is about what Jesus is going to do for us and what we can do for him. Let's follow him this week with our lives.